Jensen presents the Keith Lowell Jensen Show with Keith Lowell Jensen. All right, here we are, episode four already. Oh, it was so great last time talking to Keith Knight, uh, incredible uh, cartoonist and the mind behind Woke on Hulu. Go back and listen to that episode. Go back and listen to the, all the episodes. Catch up, okay? Catch. Up. I don't want you to get left behind on this episode and be confused and not know what's going on. Uh, I would like to start off by getting uh, some of the housekeeping out of the way. Let's thank our sponsor. Always exciting because our sponsor is so great. 800-pound Gorilla Records. Uh, they put out so many great comedians' albums, including uh, Ben Roy. His new album, No Enlightenment in Sobriety, is available now. Go get it. And 800-pound Gorilla Records put out my special. And uh, if you want to support this podcast, one great way to do it is to send us cash. But another great way to do it is uh, to go and um, support my special on Amazon Prime, leave a review. Those really help. Tell all your friends to watch it because that's my advertising budget is telling you to tell your friends. There. I just spent my whole advertising budget right there. Um, Did I just say advertising? I don't know. I'm having fun here. Um, My guest today, I'm... (laughs) I, you know, I'm excited to have her, but I'm also intimidated to have her on here. Um, I went to Shanghai. Uh, that's in China. Uh, it was very exciting. In case you thought I was trying to pull one over on you, you know, I went to Shanghai and you're like, oh, wow. And I'm like, you know, Shanghai, Missouri. A lot of people don't know about Shanghai, Missouri. No, I went to the Shanghai in China and I, I met Andrea, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read her more official bio in a minute here, but I'll tell you that I, I meet this person. She's in a comedy competition that I'm judging, and she's hilarious, and I voted her to win. And I, I can admit that now, the tour is over. I was the worst judge ever. I was allowing contestants to take me on a tour of a, of a chocolate factory in China, and another one of the contestants took me on this, like, food tour of Shanghai. Um, only afterwards did it occur to me, oh, my God, you're not supposed to let people that you're judging, like, give you all these things. But it never even occurred to me. I just Someone's like, hey, can I take you out to eat? I was like, sure, I love being taken out to eat. Andrea didn't do any of those things, and I thought she was the best. She's very, very funny. Um, but then I start talking to her, and I'm like, so what brings you to Shanghai? And, you know, everyone else is like, oh, I'm here teaching English. And she's like, oh, I'm a professor at the university. And I'm like, shut your mouth. No, really, what, what brings you? And no, that was it. She was there as a professor. And I'm not done yet. And a circus performer. She is a, a trapeze artist and does stuff with fire and I don't know, crazy. Uh, so um, I don't, I feel like you should choose. You can be smart and accomplished in that way. Or you can be a stand-up comedian who dropped out of school and did a bunch of drugs. Uh, or you could be a wacky person who stumbled into the circus. You don't get to do all three. That's not right. Anyway, let's read the official bio here. Uh Andrea Jones-Roy is a social scientist specializing in complexity. See, that kind of shit. I, can't, I don't know how to deal with that. She's written a book and several research papers on complex systems and regularly contributes articles to media outlets on, you guessed it, complexity, plus data science, international relations, diversity, and uncertainty. She's also a stand-up comedian and circus performer. The whole thing is confusing, but basically I'll do whatever it takes to get people to pay attention to social science and complexity. She explains uh, she earned her Ph.D. in political science at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. 
Hello, Andrea. How are you? Hello. That was quite the introduction. And thank you. I'm fine. Thank you for clarifying that I didn't take you anywhere in Shanghai. You, <laughs> That's the key takeaway for me. I was like, oh, I was a jerk. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not forgetting anything, am I? Was wow. there, no, was there any? Shit. Yeah. You didn't try to bribe the judges? No, no. I would only add that, that you voted for me and I didn't win, which means that no one liked me but you. Uh, which I think I, is, is a great compliment. I, I'm when, fine with when that. When you when you consider how high I voted for you, they yeah. must have really yeah. hated you. <laughs> <laughs> Very um, divisive comedy for me back in <laughs> Shanghai. <laughs> um, me and and the other judges disagreed on quite a bit, and uh, it, I I. If it didn't mean a free trip to Shanghai, I never would have agreed to judge a competition. I don't do comedy competitions. Yeah. Uh, I, I did a few in the beginning. I'm not saying you shouldn't do them. If any young comedians are listening, do them. Do everything. Do it all. Get on stage. Period. Boom. Go. Yeah. But I don't like them. I don't do them. And yeah. I would not judge one. They've offered to have me judge once here locally. But then they're like, hey, you want to come out to Shanghai and perform in the first international China comedy festival? I'm like, yeah. yeah. And part of that <laughs> was, was judging a comedy competition. I was like, all right. And I feel so bad admitting this. But the first night, you know, I I flew all the way there and Turner Sparks picked me up, drove me to the club and I slept on a couch in the club for like an hour, got up and started watching a competition. And I was having the hardest time staying awake. I was (laughs) just like in front of a jet lagged audience. I see. This is good. Yeah. That's your demographic. Yeah. Yeah. Just almost passed out. Not really aware of what's going on. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) barely with um, it that's my audience that to be fair is the only i share your your what is it not not trepidation but your lack of interest let's say in competition the only comedy competition i've done is that one and i honestly don't now know why i did it other than yeah i'm with you that the first annual china comedy festival sounds awesome but, yeah i mean that's a great yeah. thing to be a part of and um, yeah. how, how his long listeners are like oh that's where we know you from it's the first annual <laughs> right. right right you were great in that An international sensation in the back of that bar on the first <laughs> floor <laughs> i just couldn't believe that you were desperate enough to fly all the way to china just for a comedy competition yeah <laughs> I couldn't get into any of the six thousand new york city ones so i was like you know what right, Shanghai right. it is <laughs> <laughs> we'll get yeah. to the real reason you were in china eventually before i i go back to your origins story as I want to do on this podcast. Uh, I did notice in, in your bio, you saying that you tried your hand at cartooning, at political cartooning. Ha! Wow, uh, you thoroughly found the bios. There's a lot well, out there. That's a that's a deep cut. Well done. You know, that one spoke to me as well, because I just had Keith Knight on, the cartoonist yes. who did Woke, and uh, confessed to him that I have tried with two different artists to create a regular sh- comic strip. Hmm. And uh, no, three. I miscounted three, actually. And um, it doesn't work out for me. And I would much rather be a cartoonist than a comedian. I'm a huge comic book guy. And um, how did it go? For, now, you tried Man. doing the drawing yourself or you partnered up with someone? I so, so they actually were not political cartoons. I mean, maybe some of them were sort of. But they were, uh, they were stupid cartoons that I drew during political science classes because ah. I am a bad grad student. Like literally Good. they would be doing like proofs and math on the board and then everyone would be writing it down. And I would start and then be like, oh, and I draw a picture of a rabbit like with a martini making a stupid pun. Like they were very dumb. Uh, That's my genre. That's good. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. But there's and there was like there were some recurring characters, but mostly it was just really bad puns. Uh, I, I have some. I have a whole blog somewhere that I can you know link out. Please to your do. Yeah, Would they're you? really dumb. Yeah. They're all other, versions of like problem sets and stuff like that. But every now okay. and again, I, actually early quarantine, it got me through it. I, I did some more dumb ones there. Oh, good. So there's some yeah. new ones. Yeah. All right. I like to think that the charm is that I'm a horrible drawer, um, but they might just be bad and not charming. Is okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know. I'll give you my professional opinion. Please. Thank you. And, and all previous collaborating artists as well, if you don't mind. I'm on it. Great. Um, so... Uh, where does Andrea Jones Roy come from? <laughs> oh, some dark places. I, let's see. Oh, and just to say for your opening, where you're like, oh, you don't get to do all three. The trick to doing all three of those things is do each of them very poorly. That's the trick. Uh, I, I'm not going to believe it for a second. Right, where right. were you born, Andrea? I was born in LA, actually. Oh my God. So now we've got <laughs> Shanghai, New York, and Los Angeles covered and, uh, yes. and Ann Arbor, Michigan as well. That's right. Um, okay. The, so you were born in LA. Of the earth, yes. And uh, is it, did, did you grow up there or was it, we just do a quick. No. And I will n- maybe never forgive my parents for this. When I was six, we moved to Frederick, Maryland, which is about an hour Northwest of DC. And at the time was total cow country. And now is only partial cow country because we got some Walmarts. How how strong are your memories of L.A.? I mean... Not at, too strong, at, unfortunately. Yeah, I was going to say, at six, was it really much of a cultural shift or you lived in your parents' house and then you lived in your parents' house somewhere else? Yeah, we went from a really small... We, we had a house on Venice Beach before Venice Beach was cool. It was like really tiny, one-story, one-bedroom thing. And then we moved to like the suburbs and had a real house. So if anything, like temporarily my life got better. I remember being really excited to have stairs in my house. Right, uh, right. But then around when I was 10 or 11, I was like, hang on, hang on. LA is where <laughs> a ton of cool stuff happens. And I am in the middle of a field and this sucks uh, in rural Maryland. So then I went through a big long phase uh, through the present where I was like, why, why did we do that? Um, and so and to this you day, lived there all through like high I school should, and everything? I should live there. Uh, yes, I stayed in Frederick through high school and then I went to college in Connecticut uh, college. that wasn't, Oh, sorry. I'm going too fast. Yes. Yeah. We'll, we'll get there. I oh, want to yeah, know. I want to know what you were like in high school. Oh, not, <laughs> not great sound. Ooh. Yeah. I honestly haven't thought about my own identity in high school in a really long time. Yeah. What which breakfast like? club cast so, member were you? I was, I was someone, someone said this to me once, or they said it about me. They were like, Andrea is well liked. In that I just had a bunch of, I knew people, but I wasn't like in a particular clique or group or anything like that. Um, So I did some like sports teams. I was into languages and I was really involved in like dance and theater, but the dance and theater were separate from my high school. So I was often like not hanging out with high school friends. And instead, because I started dance late in life, I was hanging out with a bunch of middle schoolers who were at my dance level. And so I would hang out with like as an 11th grader, like a bunch of eighth graders, like a huge creep. Um, did you go to public school? Yeah. So uh, what are your parents like? Are they intellectuals or are they circus folk? They are. <laughs> they are somewhere <laughs> in between. If those are the extremes, they're pretty down the middle, I would say. I was hoping uh, your father was a professor who married a clown. I'm trying oh to figure out the DNA here. <laughs> oh, my God. That would explain a lot. It's not <laughs> it might not be that far off. Here's what it is. So my dad is a documentary filmmaker. 
Oh, and my perfect. mother is a yoga teacher. So you can oh sort of God. see where it would yes. come from. Yeah. That is amazing. I, yeah. I've never asked anyone that and had the answer actually be like, you know, yeah, when you mix a, yeah. <laughs> a Labrador with a poodle, you get a Labradoodle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, it sort of checks out now that I think about it. So uh, it sounds like even in high school, your pursuits were as they are now. Yeah. You, you you can't decide whether you're gonna gonna be your mom or your dad here. I mean, you've got you were studying languages and some pretty heavy intellectual pursuits for a high school student. It sounds like, but then also doing theater and dance. It sounds like you've been talking to my therapist. <laughs> we're good friends. Uh, uh-huh. Their blog. Oh my god, their blog about <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, I'm very famous through my therapist's pen name for me or a pseudonym. Um, right. Yeah, no, my parents were very... Actually, Labradoodle is what they call you. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. Uh, No, my parents were very, like, they're not that intellectual in the sense that they weren't, like, pressuring me to go to a top college or anything like that, and they were never very, like, you need straight A's or do anything. They were kind of like, be well-rounded and do whatever you want. And so I did. And it's all their fault, basically. (laughs) (laughs) But the irony, irony truly is that my entire life now, this is serious therapy, my entire life, including um, at, when I was very little, I wanted to be one of those people who just has like one thing that they're amazing at and they're dedicated to and they're obsessed with. And I've just spent my whole life through the present moment trying to find that one thing. See, that's the thing is that we want to we want that, but we want it young. Yeah. And I think what's going to happen is you're not going to get that. I mean, I think you're very good at some things, but you're going to get mastery when you're older right. of three different things. You watch. Yeah. That's what's going to happen. And it's going to be <laughs> you're going to be glad. You're not going to regret that decision. Well, I don't want to jump now. too far ahead, but I did decide in grad school. I was like, I'm done trying to choose. And so I've tried to do that, but it's still, you know. Okay, good, good. Yeah. Well, well, I'm getting ahead. So yeah, we, we got to accept who we are. Yeah. Um, would you say it was a happy childhood? It was okay. Uh, I tell me if this is too dark for you, but I had a lot of eating disorders and anxiety and OCD, and I'm sort of mentally a mess. And so it was adolescence was a tough time. Um, high school got a bit better. It was it was it was okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, got, you know my I'm, my brain short circuited a little bit there because okay. I'm I'm a father. Mm. And. <laughs> Right away you go to, okay, so what's the secret? How do I, how do I help my daughter not have any of those things that so many women, and I know yeah. increasingly more and more men, uh, yeah. struggle with? Yes. You know, and it's, it's on your mind all the time. Like, will you have a whole society that's working against you mm-hmm. to give people a negative body image and to tell people, uh, you know, that they ain't shit, uh, mm-hmm. to, to paraphrase Cat Williams. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Is she if okay? Just, Do you actively worry, or is this just because it's it's out I, there? I don't know. I think forever. so. Yeah. Okay. I think so. The parents never know, right? Did yeah. yours? <laughs> How old is she? Uh, she just turned eleven. Okay, it kicked in for me big time when I was eleven. So uh, <laughs> don't be on the lookout if you really want to get into it. It was a uh, around puberty, podcast. so like it delays, and it did for me. It like delays the onset of like the physical experience of puberty for okay girls. Uh, and so I don't know if that's something that worries her, then she'll probably stop eating. But if not, she might be okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I was, I, Does she I have was a lot of gender dysphoria? So. You tell me. Yeah. Is this what this podcast is about? 
That's it exactly. Perfect. Uh, I I was talking to my producer Joe, and I said uh, because he also has a daughter. I said, uh, why don't we start a podcast so we can trick people into telling us how to raise our daughters? That's a good idea. And he, he thought it was a good idea too. We don't actually release these. Um, so then you uh, then you went off to Kentucky for college, Connecticut. Connecticut. Yes, the Kentucky of the North. <laughs> there is a difference, right? Yeah, slight. It's ever I'm, so slight. Yeah. Okay, I I have to admit, like with comedy, I've gotten to travel a bit, uh, and 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 you know, even before that, I drove my Volkswagen around the country. But until I go to a state, yeah, I can't even say that because okay, I've been I've performed in Ohio like three times now. Yeah, I still mix up Idaho and Ohio, and there are two states that couldn't be more different. And they're really far and, apart from each other. <laughs> and they're on opposite sides of the yeah. country. And I, I yeah. can't, I can't keep them straight. Connecticut, Kentucky. Okay, whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, if, if this counts, I like that we we've both hung out in Shanghai, but like domestic geography, not so great. No, I'm I'm similar with a lot of West Coast geography. Like I know where okay. LA is, and I have a sense of Seattle, but it's a little bit fuzzy. Oh, okay. So, yeah. <laughs> so you know Sacramento then. It's in between those two. Yes. Yes. There exactly. you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's my home. Yes. Um, okay. So uh, college in Connecticut. And what was what were you studying? Were you, were you continuing with the theater stuff there? Yes. So I went to, to Connecticut College to because I wanted to study Chinese, mainly because I just wanted to get somewhere or do something that was as far away from my hometown as I could think of. And like this language that made no sense to me on that was spoken in the opposite of the world. So it made, seemed like the thing to do. And I wanted to keep dancing. And so Khan had a really good program for, um, both dance and for Chinese language. And, okay. um, and then while I was there, I ultimately ended up triple majoring in Chinese. <laughs> yeah. Chinese language and literature, economics, and international relations, and I got a minor in dance. Though technically, <laughs> this is the only thing I've ever like truly won at in my entire life, uh, including that comedy competition. Uh, technically, for the dance minor, I was missing one course, and I just never took it. But the registrar didn't catch it, so I got the dance minor anyway. Like I never ah, undeclared it, and so I got it illegally. Sticking it to the man. What's yeah. the statute of limitations on that? Uh, that's Can, a good question. I might be about to get it revoked. <laughs> let me talk to my lawyers uh, and I'll get right back. Because that right, dance me, minor has been the, the centerpiece of my career since then. So I really need to hang on to that. It's why we booked you. It yes. really is. We saw that on your resume. <laughs> we need another dance minor on this show. Yeah. So you you graduate from there. How, how do you end up in Ann Arbor? Uh, a series of bad choices, truly. Okay. Uh, I was in grad school and I didn't know what to do next. And I had a professor of international relations who was very influential on me. And he stood in front of his class. I took two of his classes. He did it in both classes. That was like, if you're good enough in this class, I will write you a letter of recommendation to a PhD program. And my name means enough that you'll get in. This guy thought very highly of himself. He was a good teacher. Nice. And so was he right? uh, Yeah, I got in. Okay, And, but that seeded the idea. And that's, I was like, it wasn't something that I knew of. I thought it was like, eh, I'll just go until I figure out what else to do. Like, why not just keep going to school? And I actually was originally just going to go for a master's and a different professor was like, don't do that because master's cost a fortune and PhDs are free. I mean, it takes your soul uh, and your youth, but other than that, it's free. 
And you can just, you know, you get a little living stipend and you can just leave after you get the master's degree in two or three years. And so I was like, yeah, perfect. So I applied to PhD programs at every intention of dropping out after the master's and being like, I'm a, a winner. And the problem is that once you get to grad school, uh, it's a cult and you're taught that if you do anything outside of academia, it's just complete failure and you're a complete sellout. At least that's how it felt to me. It's not that they're Wow. It was pretty explicit. Yeah. It's really, it's gotten better since I left. But at the time in my field, the feeling was like, if you're not going into academia, why are you here? And your PhD was in political science. That's right. Do I sound bitter? I might sound bitter. (laughs) No, no. I love it. Uh, But you do get sucked in. It became my world and it became very much like how you, how I would evaluate myself. I mean, and I'm in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It's, there's not a ton of people around who aren't grad students. um, And you just kind of lose perspective. Um, And I spent most of my twenties doing that. And political science has remained your passion. Yes and no. Um, I, uh, it's, it's sort of a winding story, but there's a lot about political science that I really love. And there's a lot about social science more broadly. And you mentioned in the bio, uh, there's a, there's a field called complexity, which is this cool yes. interdisciplinary field at the intersection of social science and natural science where I think serious magic happens. So okay. political science is very much a way to get to what I think is some really like lightning rod, cool stuff. And I think generally political science and social science helps people think about the world that's messy and confusing and infuriating in like a slightly more organized way. So I I really it really changed how I think. And so I almost care less about the substance of the research as I do about the like the lens through which you see the world. Dumb it down for me a little bit. Yeah. How would you explain what political science is? Define political science. Yes. So I've been trying to figure out how to do this for like 10 years because the biggest (laughs) thing I learned when I left grad school was that no one knows what political science is. And so I don't know if you've ever spent 10 years on something and it's like doing like stand up for 10 years and then someone's like, hang on, hang on, hang on. What is stand up comedy? Like it's, it's, it was really jarring. I I literally just got a review this week explaining to me that what I do isn't stand up comedy. So that is an awesome analogy. So you know how it feels. Yeah. (laughs) No, I don't think it's comparative at all. (laughs) Anytime you put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into anything, look, like grad school beats down your self esteem, but you know, being on enough open mic comedy stages or whatever will be the same. Like you'll, we'll we'll all go through it in some form or another. Yes. Um, We've both been out on that ledge. Yes. Yes. Uh, where a bunch of random strangers are like, no, thanks. Like to your whole person. Right. Or jump, jump, jump. Yes, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, so political science is trying to understand, uh, politics and political behavior and things like power and reputation and trust and elections and democracy and um, equality and opportunity, all these like mushy concepts. It's trying to understand them through formal theory and data. And so it's taking the methods that you learned from science classes, like observe, hypothesis, theory, test, et cetera, et cetera, but applying it to things like do democracies lead to better outcomes for humans 
to find better outcomes in terms of whatever you want. You know, uh, what are some of the things that actually predict, uh, if you look at the evidence for the last 50 years, what actually gets people to turn out to vote hypothetically that might be on our minds. Right. Right. And so it's, it's a lot of people think it's like, it's like policy wonk or like hot takes or that kind of, or analysts. And it's not quite that one analogy I used recently that I think works is like, if you're watching CNN and you have the, the talking heads come on and they're debriefing the debate, they're super smart, but they're like, weather people and political scientists are kind of like climate scientists where it's like, we're not going to be able to tell you like what's going to happen tomorrow or how to interpret this particular event. But we can tell you that generally speaking, it's cold in November and that's a political and a weather prediction for you. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Does that make Uh, sense? It's very hard to actually explain. uh, And you'd think I'd be better at it by now. No, it makes more sense to me now than it did before you started explaining. So success. Perfect. Great. Um, how did you go from University of Michigan Ann Arbor to me meeting you? Uh, you yeah. were you were teaching in Shanghai. Yes, so at the I, university. Yes, NYU opened a Shanghai campus, um, and I went out there to help open that campus and to develop their undergrad major in social science. Um, so after I finished my dissertation at Michigan, I taught at Carnegie Mellon for two years as like a temporary postdoc position. Um, and then I was applying to jobs and I really wanted nothing more than to move to New York so I could do more circus and more comedy. Actually, the academic career was sort of like less of a priority for me. And so I applied to NYU, New York, and they were like, cool, we're actually not hiring, but we are opening a campus in Shanghai. And my dissertation was on uh, censorship in China. And so it made sense. And they were like, if you want to go out there, like, go ahead. And so I went thinking I would go for 10 months and I loved it. And I ended up staying for three years. And one of the reasons I went is uh, in grad school is when I got into circus. And it was really like what kept me sane. And then when I was at Carnegie Mellon, I still wanted to keep doing it. So I would like drive back from Pittsburgh to Detroit, which is... uh, pretty far drive. I know that for you, it seems like inches from each other, but they're really far on the East coast. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's near Kentucky. You can, you can figure it out. And, and Idaho. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and do you go, do you go through Idaho on the, that's correct. Yeah. Okay, you go, yeah, you go know, through Idaho right on just... the way there, but on the way back, uh, it's Ohio. In okay. Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> they're the same state. It doesn't matter. Um, uh, anyway, I was like doing a lot of circus and my colleagues were like, you're not being serious enough. You need to stop doing circus, blah, blah, blah. So part of the reason I went to NYU Shanghai was to get away from circus because I was like, Westerners <laughs> do not have a, like Americans, foreigners, maybe I shouldn't call them Westerners. Like there's no demand for that in Shanghai. Like Shanghai has, or, or China has like an incredible acrobatics history and culture and their performers, you know, have been in a backbend since they were born. And there's no, no one wants, like, I had just turned 30, like a 30 year old white woman to do a handstand. Like no one wants that. And um, I got to Shanghai and I was there for a month and being all depressed about leaving circus behind and all this stuff. And then a circus themed nightclub opened right in the central district. Uh, so and great. they wanted a, purposely a mix of expats and locals. And so I was like, of course I want to do this. And so I auditioned and I got it. It was awesome. So, so you did a YouTube series that I loved. Yeah, yeah. Um, sixty seconds, Shanghai in sixty seconds. That's the one. Thank you. Uh, yes. Did I, I got the name right? I didn't know if it was yeah. sixty seconds or a minute. <laughs> yeah. 
um, Shanghai is a fascinating place. You even just the uh, geography of it as you go around. They're like, okay, this is the Dutch. This is the area from when yeah. the Dutch occupied them, and then here's the area from when the you know who the French, but the, the yeah. concession, the Dutch concession, and then the French concession, um, and so many expats. I, I mm-hmm. very rarely didn't have someone, either a young Chinese person or an expat pop up to help me when I, I couldn't mm-hmm. communicate with someone because of the mm-hmm. language barrier. So that's why people were like, how'd you perform comedy in Shanghai? But there were so many people that spoke English there. Both, yeah. both Chinese people spoke English, but so many people from outside that are, that are working there. Yep. So, uh, the comedy scene didn't mix them as much. There were nights for Chinese comedy and then nights for English speaking comedy for expats. Yeah. Was the circus club more of a mix or it was. Yeah. So the comedy nights, uh, you're right that typically it was like one or the other, but there was some overlap. So sometimes I actually did the Chinese mics twice oh. and it almost broke my brain. But that's great uh, that you can do that because you speak is yeah, it Mandarin? Mandarin, yeah. But uh, I made the mistake of doing crowd work and nothing kills the show <laughs> as being on stage and being like, I'm sorry, could you say that again more slowly? Like it's just right, totally right, fell right. Apart. <laughs> <laughs> and then I had to lie down for like a year. Um, so there was some mixing, um, you know, and vice versa. A lot of Chinese uh locals would practice English. But to your question, yes, the circus was a much better uh, much more mixed. Um, That's great. In two ways. So the cast was deliberate. It was a London-based circus um, club called Circle of Soir. It's still, there's still um, a location in London. The one in Shanghai is sadly closed. Um, so they opened it, but every business in China needs to be uh, either a joint venture or majority owned by local Chinese. So it was a joint partnership from the ownership. They purposely got a joint uh uh, Chinese and international cast. And I, for most of the time, was the only person backstage, with probably about 10 or 15 of us, it would rotate, um, who really spoke any Mandarin at all. And so my Chinese okay. got a lot better by virtue of being there because I was like the default translator. Otherwise, it was like gestures and screaming. And so I learned how right, to like, right. say all this weird stuff in Chinese. So like, I can't get you to the hospital, but I can get you like fishnet tights. Like that's right. <laughs> where my Chinese is. <laughs> Um, Which those uh, can hold your muscle on your leg. I learned from skateboarding, so that's almost as good. Yeah, they're uh, a good set of fishnet tights could really save your life, I think. For sure. um, In many ways. Um, And then the the guests were also very mixed. Um, But here are some stereotypes for you. So uh, the club was open from like 9 p.m. until like 4 a.m. And most of the Chinese clientele would show up at 9 on the dot. And we all thought this was insane. And they would stay until about 11 then no one would really be there from like 11 to one. And then all the expats would come roaring in wasted at 1 PM. <laughs> and like uh, the other, in the middle hour, it would be like a few Chinese women, like just passed out, you know, on the, on the kind of benches at the tables and things like that. And the Chinese, <laughs> like the locals would buy, you know, bottle service and champagne shows and all this kind of stuff. And the expats who, as you absolutely correctly identified are mostly English teachers and wanderers would come in and get like a vodka Red Bull, and a bunch of cocaine and like not really buy much, you know? So like every stereotype you can think of was, was born out. I did not run into drugs at all. In China. Really? So Where, there is a, what were you doing? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm like vegan. I don't even drink. Uh, and I think mm. I, I've been that way for long enough that I just give off a vibe. <laughs> I see. <laughs> They're like, he's not interested. Yeah. But I also noticed how crime free. Yeah. 
the the streets were you know i mean the first couple nights there i was nervous walking through dark alleys at three in the morning and stuff and by the time i left i wasn't yeah um which was so interesting to to then contrast that with my calls home where my wife's Mm -hmm. like yeah there were two guys Mm -hmm. chasing each other shooting at each other from their cars and then one of them crashed into a tree a block away and then they ran Mm -hmm. past our house shooting at each other (laughs) while running i'm like oh my god so as you were saying that i was like yeah yeah like no that should not be normalized but yes exactly it Uh, it is exactly and then in china i i yeah. So uh, how do you have drugs and not have uh, violent crime? That, that's well, amazing. I think, and I'm not an expert on local Chinese politics, but I believe that if you are caught with any kind of weapon, they'll just like kill you on the spot. That's a, a, an approximation, nice. but it's very serious. Like you just cannot have weapons. The, the trade-off, right, is the government has a whole bunch and you get, you know, Tiananmen massacres and stuff like that. But yes. generally it's very, very highly enforced. I will also say that my understanding since I I left in 2016, went back to visit a handful of times, obviously haven't been in 2020, though I did when things were dark. I mean, things have been dark in New York for a while, but like midsummer, I was like, I might go to Shanghai and there were, you know, no flights because right. it's not happening. Um, but when I was there, yeah, drugs were free flowing. I mean, you they there wow. were people in the clubs. So I am not a nightclub person really, except for when I worked at one. And so that put me in this like, community that was seeking this sort of thing out and we would go to other nightclubs where other friends were bartenders and all give each other drinks and it was the only time in my life I was ever like part of the cool group and there were just every club there would just be people the drug dealers would just be in the club and you would just walk up to them and give them money and they would give you drugs like it wasn't like you called a guy I mean there were guys that you right. would call, etc but it was extremely easy to get weirdly but you're right otherwise I mean it was completely safe. And so then you have, it's 4 a.m. You have, you know, a bunch of drunk Italians running around high, you know, in the beautiful French concession. Like it's not <laughs> right, right. for the neighborhood, but it's super safe. Um, if anything, my, my Chinese friends, my, my castmates backstage at Cirque would ask me what America was like. And the first question was always, I hear it's dangerous. Does everyone have a gun? And right. And, the, the the sentiment is that, yeah, the U.S. is extremely dangerous. And then, you know, meanwhile, everyone I know from home is like, oh, my gosh, you're in China. Is that dangerous? Are you safe? Uh-huh. You're like, yeah, I've never been safer in my whole life. I literally right. sleep on the streets and everything's fine. Right. And, yeah. and the government oppression, um, yeah. at least while we were there, uh, they didn't care about us. We're very right. small fish. Right. <laughs> so, and Which, you know, there's a lot of privilege and complicated stuff embedded in that. But it is. Uh, and sure. I saw my my Chinese friends um, again at Cirque were um, they were all uh, migrant workers, so none of them were originally from Shanghai. And I would we'd go out on the weekend or like you know on our days off together, and I would drive around with them sometimes. And they got a lot of grief for having um, out-of-city license plates. They would get pulled over oh, by the cops okay. a lot more often and get fined, and they couldn't drive on the highways at certain hours. And that's just for having having out-of-Shanghai license plates. And so there's a lot of bias and a lot of wow. issues that the local population puts up with that we, yeah, we just glided right over. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we broke the law every time we got on the internet, right? I mean, uh, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we had instance. phones yeah. with the little proxy servers so that we could yep. bypass the. <laughs> yep. People are like, you won't be able to access information. I'm like, no, I will. Yeah. <laughs> I just have to be yeah. careful about who I share it with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So exactly. l- let me back you up a little bit because we're we're following your education path, which does eventually okay. lead you to Shanghai. And yeah. away from circus. But how did you get into circus? Where did that happen? 
Yes. So it happened in grad school. Um, so I was, I did dance, you know, in, in middle and high school and I did it in college. And then after college I said, okay, I'm going to a PhD program. I'm going to get serious. No more dancing and this and that. Like I'm going to be serious. <laughs> and in my first semester I was in this, this statistic, uh, the statistics class and it was just killing me. And I left anyway, I, I'm getting too fine grain, but basically I stumbled into, uh, the student union where they were advertising the synchronized swimming team. And they were like, do you like dancing? Do you like swimming? Have you ever thought of combining them? And I was like, this is what I need in my life. <laughs> and so I joined the synchronized swimming team for the University of Michigan for two years until I got so old that they were like, you can't keep competing with undergrad. <laughs> <laughs> you <laughs> aged out. I, oh. I was like, can I redshirt? How does this work? I don't know enough about sports. And the answer was no. Uh, so I did so I synchronized swimming. And then after synchronized swimming, I was like, no, I'm really going to be serious. And then uh, I got into, I realized that Ann Arbor is home to these like Olympic level figure skating, a uh, uh, big figure skating <laughs> link and Olympic level ice dancing coaches you, and people. So I got very into figure skating for like three years. You are so much worse than I thought you were. It's so insane. It's exhausting. I'm sure you're listening. They're like, we get it. We're done. This is insane. Um, well, I'm glad you mentioned cocaine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm off it now. Let's put it that way. Uh, but even before I tried it, I was like, I, I spent my whole life being like, I can never do cocaine because I will love it too much. And then I finally <laughs> and tried it in Shanghai. I've only ever done it in Shanghai. And the minute I did it, I was like, yeah, this is the best. Like, this is <laughs> totally the best. Do you want me to talk with your daughter? Is this the kind of conversation? Uh, no, have? no. As of right okay, now, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so I did figure skating for a while. And there it was even more embarrassing because that same stats professor who's great, uh, his name is Rob Francis, great professor, he had three young daughters, like like six and eight and five, like very young daughters. And they also took figure skating lessons. And all the lessons happened at the same time on like Tuesday and Thursday evenings. And like the adult skaters would be in one lane and then the kids would all be in the others. And so like every Tuesday and Thursday, he wasn't my professor anymore, but he would be there watching his daughters skate and also me skate. And That's like, so I'm learning how to do little figure eights and whatever. And once he saw me on campus, he was like, Andrea, I have to say you've really improved. And I was like, oh, you mean my statistics? And he was like, no, you're ice dancing. I was like, oh, right. oh, what a mess. And so then I was like, I got to focus. I got to focus. So I kind of petered her off of doing that. And then I was in a grocery store in Ann Arbor. And I was so lonely and I was so bored. I was reading like the bulletin boards. You know, they have those like community boards and grocery sure. stores that are like, come to our potluck or whatever. There was right. a flyer for uh, like a festival in Detroit, which is like an hour drive from Ann Arbor. And it said, with performances by the Detroit Flyhouse Aerialists. And I was like, uh, what are those words? They are awesome. And I looked it up and it turned out it was a circus school, like an hour's drive from Ann Arbor. And so like the next day I went. And the first day I was there, like you basically, you walk into this big warehouse. It was Detroit before it was like way too gentrified and white people took over. It was like just a few kind of big warehouses and so uh, it's the beginning of that you can you was, contributed you got in on I the ground floor i'm the problem yeah. yes exactly yes <laughs> <laughs> i hate that no but that's a, New York right now yes that's a real thing that drives me crazy as as an artist who's you know working class or lower mm -hmm. uh we move where we can afford mm -hmm. but then we make other white people feel comfortable yep. in the places we move to yeah and then they gentrify and yeah we're us moving in is a bad sign and i hate yes. that because i'm not i'm not trying to do that i am the harbinger <laughs> of doom and six dollar coffee yes. that is me <laughs> and you from the sound of it yes exactly and, and i'm mostly i like to think fairly blameless 
But I do drink that $6 coffee. I, I do love, love it. it. <laughs> <laughs> there is no price too high for coffee for me. For, for good, yeah, for a good yeah. coffee. You really can taste the difference. Coffee's one of those things that can be done right. <laughs> and now we're from our sponsor, Gentrifier. <laughs> I was just thinking the same thing, yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow. Oh, someone's getting Gen- some money for this. Gen- gentrify Roasters. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. Okay. I mean, even where I am in New York right now, it's like on the left side of my street is $6 coffee and on the right is 99 cents coffee. And right. I am the problem. Right. Yeah. Cause you're across the go. street. Yeah. <laughs> it's like buy local. You're like kind of okay. Um, but yeah. Oh yeah. So I go to this warehouse and it was just the most amazing experience of my whole life. There's trapezes, there's this, there's hanging on, you know, and, and no one cares about my dissertation and it like, it truly saved my life. And so I went every week, um, on the weekends to learn stuff. And I was always just a student of it, but it was really the thing that like, like synchronized swimming and dance. And I did a bunch of yoga and figure skating. They were all like great. and kind of satisfied this like need to move basically. Um, Mm -hmm. but circus really felt right. And that was one of the few times in my life that I've found something. And I was like, yes, this, like that thing I was looking for when I was younger, like, not so much that I fully focused on it, obviously, but it was like a very easy, like, oh yeah, this is obviously what I'm going to spend my time doing. And so I would do like, they had like recitals and I would do that. And, you know, and I got very involved in the community there and it was just a really great group of people. And just being able to go to Detroit and leave Ann Arbor suburbia was really cool. Um, but I was always just a student and sometimes I'd go to New York. New York has a lot of great training places. And I lived for a summer at a place called The Muse, which was like this artist collective where we all illegally, like, it was like the musical rent, except way more expensive because we still paid a fortune for these like windowless right. rooms in the back of a circus studio. But it was always just as a student. And I never thought I would do anything serious with it until I got to Shanghai and sort of felt free to try to actually make a living. Or not a living, but like professionally perform. So... You also tried stand-up comedy for the first time in Shanghai. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to read a quote from your Shanghai in 60 Seconds video. Oh, my. Okay, wow. You, you said, Shanghai means a lot to me because it allowed me to be who I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Can you expand on that? <laughs> Very good. Wow. You've watched this more recently than I have. Um <laughs> Shanghai was, oh, now I'm just going to get sad that I'm not there. Shanghai was this paradise for me. And I spent most of my life trying to, not really knowing what I wanted to do and kind of getting tangled up in like whatever community I landed in. So I showed up in grad school and I was sort of like, well, I guess this is how I evaluate myself now. And this is, you know, um, and I would dabble in stuff that I was interested in, but not really. And Shanghai was this very weird, and to this day, I've tried to figure out why. It was just this very liberating experience. And I just felt confident enough to just do whatever I wanted. And so, whereas in New York, if I had heard that a circus-themed nightclub was opening, or in Michigan, or Pittsburgh, or wherever, I would never have had the guts to audition. I would have been like, yeah, but I'm a student, I'm not good enough no, I would never go. Right. Whereas this place, not only did I, I emailed them once with some videos and some photos and they didn't write back. And I did something that I never do, which is I email a second time and they were like, Oh yeah, come in for an audition. Like even that level of aggressive, quote unquote aggressive. That's how I think of it. Um, it's something I felt emboldened to do. 
And then uh, I had done improv a lot in my 20s. I would go to New York and do that. Um, I'm not great at improv, but I was always I always wanted to do stand up, but I was too afraid. And so improv was like, well, if it's not good, it's not just my fault. Right. <laughs> I can blame the five other people on stage. Uh, That's right. literally why I did improv. So I found an improv group there. And eventually, yeah, it was about a year and a half in. I was like, you know what, what I've always, always, always wanted to do is stand up and I've never had the courage. And something again about being in Shanghai, I was just like, I think I was like, well, if it goes horribly, I can leave this hemisphere, like in a hurry. Right, right. (laughs) And no one has to know that it sucked. I think it was, I don't know, it was just very liberating. Years, near the end of my time there, I was speaking with someone who was once a, and this was a story for a lot of people. Oh, I was a lawyer and then I moved here and now I'm a, you know, crazy, whatever. And I was talking to someone who had been an architect in London and now she was a makeup artist and we were, I was working on a show. And so she was doing my makeup and we were just talking about it. And I was like, why do you think that is? I was like, everyone I know has one of these stories. And she was like, oh, you come here and there's no judgment. And then you just do what you actually want to do. And I, I feel very sorry that I've allowed my fears about what other people think to get back into my head since I've been back in the U.S. Yeah, we need to we need to get back to Shanghai for a cleansing. Yes. The other thing I will say about Shanghai and this this has changed a bit. But at the time, speaking of gentrification, like it was all very new and exciting so you'll remember, like, the, the comedy scene was extremely new. You were there for the first annual International right. Comedy Festival. The stand-up scene had, you know, Turner was working on it for, for a really long time, like many years. But it was still very nascent and growing. And you kind of felt like you were on the ground floor of something that could be very big. And the same with circus. There wasn't this, like, the way that, you know, Western ideas of circus is different from the more traditional Chinese. And that was new there as well. So you kind of felt like you were on the cutting edge and like, if there was something that you wanted to do, you could be like, well, I'm just going to create a community to do it. And you could. It was just sort of this magic land. And again, there's a lot of like white expat privilege that comes with being able to be like, and now I own a juice company, you know, and people did that. <laughs> but you just could, you know, artists would just go there. You know, there are all these dancers from Russia who would make a living as dancers in Shanghai that you could never do in Russia. You know, it was just sort of a truly a land of opportunity. I, I met people that were playing baseball professionally in Mexico who, yeah, you know, they were having yeah. the time of their life. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and there were, were people in Shanghai on the Shanghai Sharks Chinese NBA, or I don't know what exactly the league right. is called, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So how do you end up putting these things together? Because you have, well, why don't you explain what political circus is, which, mm. well, that first. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. So Political Circus is a live show that I do slash did before the pandemic um, that was half political science and half circus. Well, it was more like (laughs) 60-40, I have to say. Um, And I would give a a lecture that I hoped was funny um, about a particular concept um, in political science that I love. So, for example, one of my favorite shows is on something called Arrow's Theorem, which proves mathematically that fair, stable democracy is impossible. And so I would do a, like a 30 minute lecture on that. And then in the second oh, half cheerful. of the show, yeah, it's very cheerful. Uh, and then, uh, in the second, and this was two years ago when we all had like a teeny, when we thought it was bad, but it wasn't bad. Uh, right. and then the second half of the show, I'll either do like a quick interview or I'll, sometimes I'll do stuff like polling the audience and then I'll do a circus performance that sums up the main themes from the lecture 
through like music and uh, like PowerPoint slides flashing behind me. And then I like usually just strip down <laughs> and my, I would end with an act with like, I voted stickers for pasties genius. Really? I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely love that. When, when did very that chaotic. happen? Uh, it it used to be a monthly start? show. It used to be a monthly show at a theater called caveat in the lower East side in New York city, which sadly is closed during the pandemic. Um, but, but, but we're what, all hoping it will open again. What, what gave you ha- the idea to, to put two such disparate things together? <laughs> Honestly? Well, I've wanted to do it for a long time and I tried a version of it, um, at a place in New York called the magnet theater. I got a, a chance to, to try out a show and I did a, a lecture on the mathematical explanations behind the causes of war while doing a burlesque act and stripping. <laughs> and it went so horribly. <laughs> my like whole family came and like my parents invited oh, some family friends. That's and the some worst. of my improv teammates were there and I thought they'd be game to like pretend to like lap dance and they weren't like, and I was trying to, it was so awkward and so bad. And so I didn't touch it for two years and I just kept them all separate until <laughs> I was doing these political science only lectures at caveat. And honestly, we just couldn't get enough ticket sales. And we were like, what's going to get people in the door. And we were like, well, circus will help. And so that's, it was out of desperation. I was like, fine, I'll put it back together. And then uh, necessity is a mother of invention out. sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I was I, like, how I can would... I get people into this lecture? I guess I could strip at the end. Yeah, fine. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Done. Uh, I thought you were going to say that just the fact that it went horribly meant you couldn't give up on it until it worked. Oh, no, I very quickly was like, that's over. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I will um, give up on something real fast. Yeah. So you the, the thing I started to say before and cut myself off was political circus was supposed to be happening tonight. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm so sorry. Are you? Thank well, you. This you, is a good doing... consolation prize, so I'll thank okay, you for good. that. Yeah. <laughs> You're, you're doing things to perform and, and get out there from, you know, over Zoom, et cetera. Have you done any of the like in-person socially distanced shows at all? Not really. Um, I've done, yeah, a lot of Zoom shows. I have a, a YouTube live stream called Ask a Political Scientist. And We're I even get did to that. one. Oh, yeah, we'll get to it. There's no circus in it. And it's it's honestly, well, okay, we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> I did one circus Zoom show that was pretty fun. But it was like, I just set myself on fire on my roof. And I don't know how many, that's not sustainable as a business model. Um, <laughs> uh, not to be like Captain Marketing on you, but. Uh, is, that yeah. might be my favorite quote ever. Um, <laughs> if you're thinking about setting yourself on fire on your roof, uh, not, make, it count. make it count the first time. It's not figure really. out how to monetize it the first and only time and end <laughs> it there. Um, but no, I, I have not. Um, I went to one. It was a rooftop show and it was really great to see comedian friends and just to be around people who are equally miserable without performing. So I don't feel like such a sorry sap on my own, but I am a bit paranoid about COVID stuff. And it was a lot of like people being close together and Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. I've just sort of felt like I probably, if I were more dedicated to comedy, I would be fighting my way to do more shows, but like a mix of being overly cautious about my health. And so I have this very lousy mentality where if I'm not doing something like all the time, it's really hard for me to like 
do it. Like, so I'll go a month and I'll go to yoga every day and then I won't go for a year. This is not healthy, but I'm kind of that way with comedy where it's like, if I'm only going to do it once or twice, I don't know what the point is. And that's really a sign that I'm a bad comedian, I think. Um, <laughs> but like, and I do, I, I will do the zoom shows, um, as much as I can and all of that, but yeah, it, it kind of never quite felt worth it. And now it's winter. I, I yeah, I went to one and yeah. I, I kind of, you know, it was the whole like boiling the frog slowly thing where initially it was, Hey, we're doing the festival. Do you want to participate via zoom? Mm. Absolutely. Sign me up. And then mm. it was like, Hey, we're actually going to do a drive-in. Do you want, mm. you know, would you want to be part of the drive-in? I'm like, yeah, I'm cool. That's cool. I'll do that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you want a carpool with two other comedians? No. What part of I'm not going <laughs> yeah. close to people. Do you not understand? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to do the drive-in. Then it was, yeah. you know what? We're actually going to have a show in the club. We are Ooh. opening the doors and people are going to keep their masks on. We're seating them far apart. And I've been offered those and I've said no yeah. to them. But because yeah. I had said yes to, you mm. know, these, these gradual steps, I, I said yes. And as soon as I said yes, I was like, what the hell did I just do? Ugh. I drove up there. It was uh, like five and a half, six hour drive, performed, got in my car and drove home. Mm. You know, so it was a like 10 yeah. or 11 hour driving day. Wow. Um, because I was... You know, the plan was I was going to sleep there, like on the stage, you know, like real comedians do. Yeah. <laughs> and Duh. it just scared the hell out of me. I was like, all right, I'm yeah. sticking with Zoom. I'll start a podcast. That's what I'll do. Yeah. Uh, can't, can't do it. No, no the, the, I, ones, the one that I'd been to, and I've seen a lot of pictures, um, you know, the audience, at least in New York, I don't think people, uh, people are inside a little bit now, but for most of the summer they were not. But people take their masks off once they're sitting, kind of like the rules for right. restaurants where it's like all of a sudden if you're sitting down you don't have coronavirus i don't know and so i was just like what we're all just sitting here laughing with our mouth wide open laughing. that's yeah. got to be up there with singing as far as a surefire yeah. way to project yeah and there was um, like there was a little side room like a green room and the comics would hang out there and i was like we are just in very close quarters now and i don't want to be a dick and be like I don't want to stand this close to you all, but I just won't put myself in this position again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't go to rest. I went to a restaurant finally in like late August, even after they've been open forever. So I think I've just been quarantining super hard, maybe needlessly hard. I don't know. Um, I don't. I, I'm um, with you. We're we're okay. doing it too. I have not okay. been to a restaurant. Even even having food delivered makes me nervous. We're doing Same. it, but <laughs> yeah. Same. I only I only yeah, caved in on that around September. Yeah. 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 Um. So political circus, uh, that, is, or I'm sorry, that we covered. Ask a yeah. political scientist. That's yes. the thing that you are doing. And I've yes. taken a look at it. And uh, what a great time for it. <laughs> yeah. um, because you're, you're actually taking it, making it practical. You're tackling subjects like changing minds, race and politics, misinformation, the media, polarization. And you're talking with really knowledgeable people in all of these fields, um, both, you know, with their educational backgrounds and also with their personal experience, which I think mm-hmm. uh, there's, a, there's a real value to that. But I'm glad that that you're appreciating. How did that come about? And what has the response to that been like? Yeah. So uh, that show came about in March when the world went to hell. And uh, I it was uh, through caveat. So I was slated to do these political circus shows all year. And I was planning on doing this big now. Na- I mean, we all have our sob stories, right? I was going to do this big national tour. 2020 is the year I'm going to get the world to care about political science. Like if we can't care about it now, we can't ever. Like this, right. is, it. this is the year. <laughs> this is it. Hopefully. Oh, my goodness. Hopefully. Um, 
And so in March, when everything shut down, uh, I actually was sitting at home and I was like, I don't think I want to jump on the live stream game right away. I was like, I don't, every comedian I knew was starting a live stream or a podcast in March. And I was like, the world doesn't need to hear from me right now. We need to hear from Dr. Fauci and we need to hear all these things. And, and there's no need for political science. We need public health experts. This is what I was telling myself in March. Like three days into the lockdown, a friend texted me and he said, I have a question. This is my friend Joe. I don't know, maybe you met him from, from Shanghai. He was a stand-up comedian in Shanghai. Anyway, Joe Schaefer texted me. And he said, yeah, uh, did, Is Joe the one that took me to the chocolate factory? That sounds like something Joe would do. Yeah. I would I would I wouldn't put that past him. Yeah. I think that was him. Yeah. Um he's a good artist, cartoonist, graphic designer guy if you want someone else to cartoon with. Um Effort number four, we're on it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um uh okay. So he texted me and he said, I have a question. He was like, is canceling or postponing elections due to the coronavirus undemocratic? And I didn't know the answer to that, but I was like, holy shit, people do want to know about politics. This is a good question. I'm going to start a live stream where I bring on the political scientists that I know and ask them questions and everyone can watch and ask questions in real time because we all have political questions and why not? And the one thing with political circus that was always challenging was I like to bring on guests because I'm not the expert in all field, subfields in political science, but I know a lot of people who are, but they're all scattered all over the place. There's, you know. Right. Um, and so I was like, well, since we're all on Zoom, I can finally get like these amazing people that I know from grad school or, or that do research who are all over the place, all over the world sometimes, um, and give regular people access to the great minds that I had access to when I was in grad school. And so that was the origin of it. And it was originally through Caveat, and we raised money for the theater, um, and then sadly that still wasn't enough to pay New York rent, not surprisingly. And so ah. then I went independent. Um, and yeah, and then, and now did it, I'm doing a special series that you just named the shows from, uh, that is hyper-focused on the election basically. Right. So that yeah. being that specifically about politics and, and about current politics is, yeah. uh, until the election. And then things will back off a little bit. Yeah, I will. Then I will. uh, Here's my plan. I will release some of the older ones. So I did 20 between March and July, um, but I only had them on YouTube and I didn't release them as podcasts. So I'll probably pick some of my like best ofs and release those podcasts after the election. Um, Like there's a really cool one that I think about a lot that was about um, how do you measure belonging and does belonging influence whether or not you participate in politics? And the answer is yes. Uh, but anyway, so that's like a cool, a cool one that I'm going to release later on. But then I'll probably do a season three, hopefully. And I don't, I, I'm so afraid of what 2021 will look like, but, but hopefully. yes, me too. Terrified. Yeah. Honestly, I'm just like, it's a, it's a cliff and I don't know if, if it all really goes bad, I'll just keep the show going. <laughs> but if we have a good <laughs> outcome, I'll be like, let's give it a second and think about something other than politics. Right. But maybe that's naive. I don't know. Um, belonging. Wow. What an interesting, uh, immediately makes me think of the juggalos. (laughs) Perfect. The the insane clown posse were so brilliant in building that fan base by giving Mm -hmm. each and every one of their fans this, you belong, you're Mm -hmm. part of, by being a fan of us, you're part of a family and we, you know, uh, I'm I'm obsessed with it, and it never occurred to me until right now how similar Trumpism is to that. Yes, that's I mean they, 
yeah, they have their rallies and they're part of their family. And you just never like <laughs> we're never going to have that with the candidates that we like on the on the left. Yeah. Um, I liked uh, Obama. I like Obama a lot as a person. Uh, the minute he was elected, I just started tearing him apart. <laughs> All the things <laughs> that he was doing that uh, yeah. were just, you know, uh, absolutely abhorrent to me. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. I'm proud of that. I mean, that's how we should be, I think, is willing to to take everyone to task and, and not be cult-like. But I don't yeah. know that it wins elections. Yeah. So, and I, I worked at 538 for about a year and a half after Shanghai. Oh, thank yeah. you for mentioning that. I so oh. wanted to ask you about that because that seems right where you would belong. Yes. Um, uh, speaking of belonging, yeah, yes and no, it turns out. But, um, but I okay. was going to say that one of my jobs, <laughs> yeah, we can get into that. One of my jobs there was to update the presidential approval tracker, which is one of the, the ongoing kind of poll aggregators on their website. Looked and at so, it right before we spoke. Yeah. So what, you know, percentage of people approve, strong, strongly approve, disapprove, strongly disapprove of Trump. And it was through, oh, I can't even, my brain is so muddled from 2020, but it was like through like Kavanaugh and the tax thing and a bunch of other crazy stuff. I, I can't even think now of what, what all happened, but it was insane in like 2017. And no matter what happened, the numbers supporting Trump didn't move, which everyone knows, but I had to right. manually type them in every day. And there's something very soul crushing about every day opening <laughs> computer and 10 times a day writing 40, 41, <laughs> 42, 41, 40, as the world is just, you know, like all that Kavanaugh stuff in particular stood out to me because I had to enter those right. numbers all throughout that. But I, yeah. Yeah, it's insane. And you're like, that's where, what will it take to break these people? Like, it's it's a true cult, I think. I, I think I decided about halfway uh, into this pandemic when I've had more time to fight with people online <laughs> to yeah. go fight with strangers. Finally, we all have more time for that. <laughs> uh, to not worry about or think about his base at all anymore. Yeah. To just decide there's nothing we can do, yep. and that's not how we're going to win the election anyway. Yeah. Um, there's a part of it that it's hard to let go because you're like, no, but you shouldn't have that support. You shouldn't. Yeah. And it's like, but he does move on. Yeah. Would, would you agree? Or? Yeah, and but it took a while for me to learn it. Like, when he was elected, I was like, okay, everyone, this is my self-preservation anyway. I was like, everyone who voted for him is eventually going to come to regret this. And I think many have, right? right. There's a lot of people who voted for him who won't, again, here's hoping. Uh, but I really thought as people observed him crash and burn, he would lose a lot of support. And it was really, I think it was like 2017 throughout that year where you're just like, this isn't moving and it should be moving. And then 2018 and it's not moving and it's still not moving. And I'm just, it took a while to realize that there's nothing that can be done. And every now and again, you hear about a diehard Trump supporter who switched and there, they were a Marine and it was when Trump, uh, insulted the Marines or they had a family member right. died COVID, and that's what did it. But it's like these very extreme isolated examples. And I think you're right. We've got to, it's getting the middle excited and getting the left to be willing to vote for Biden basically. So I want to, uh, as we get ready to wrap up here, I want to ask if, if there's anyone out there who hasn't voted yet. Um, mm. and, and I haven't, but I have filled my ballot all in. It gets dropped off tomorrow. Very good. Bravo. <laughs> um, if you have any advice, uh, I mean, how, how to go about looking at your ballot from a, from a mm. political science perspective or just with, with your background, what is a good way to go about making your decisions on some of those 
things further down the ballot? Mm, that's a great question, because a lot of times we just think about the presidential race and then show up and you're like, uh, who are these other people? I don't know. Um, so one thing if you're that I think is great if we you know more people are mailing in is you can have your computer. You know, it's an open book test, basically, yes, and you can yes. actually look people up. Um, one of the things that I recommend that I didn't even do for a very long time is look up what the jobs actually are. Because after you leave like House of Representatives, Senate, and maybe local, you know, state level representatives, a lot of states, New York isn't, but a lot of states are voting on really local offices. And you might not know what a comptroller or an attorney general or whatever does. And so I would say before you get into the weeds on the individual people, look up what the actual job is, and then you'll have a better sense of, okay, who do I really actually care about? Um, When in doubt, I mean, I'm guilty of this. It's like, you know, vote for (laughs) people of color, vote for women or something like that. But I, it, I prefer if you actually look these people up because there are plenty of people of color and women who you will strongly disagree with. Um, of and course. don't use that as the shortcut. <laughs> Though I'm guilty of it. There was in, in Michigan, I kept voting for some woman named Constance for some local role just because I thought the name Constance was cool. And I voted for her like four <laughs> times. <laughs> and I never looked her up. So maybe I'm not the right person to ask. But um, <laughs> that and I would say the referendums, referenda are really worth looking at because they're worded in a way that will oh. be confusing and misleading. And oh, unless you want to like, get through the legalese, like look up in advance. And that's why, you know, you see these signs where they're like, vote no on two. And they don't actually get into what two is. Like there was one also, this was a Michigan election that was like, do you want to vote to increase taxes? Question mark. Eventually it would lead to more parks and green spaces and it would be open to everyone. But like most people are not going to take the time to read all of that. And they're going to say, what? I don't want higher, pa- higher taxes. No. Right. So, Bear so, tax. What is that? Yeah, exactly. So look those up. And usually there are a lot of resources out there that will spell out what the two sides actually mean. There's a lot of really great, like nonprofit third party work going on. You know, one of the things my wife and I have started doing uh, in the last couple of elections um, is going to a uh, a black women's Mm. voting guide. Mm. I was like, if I really want to be a good white ally, at the very least, I can ask them how they're voting. That's a great idea. uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I was thinking about like, you know, use an LGBTQT voting guide. Um, and, and if you find one in, in your area, they, they get down even to the super regional specific stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm glad that you said, if you're in a place where you don't know. Yeah. You know, kind, kind of like when you're, when you're filling out a test in school, like, <laughs> yeah. aren't there certain letters that come up right more often? So if you really don't know and you're going to guess, guess B. Is it B? I don't remember yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can also um, leave it blank. If you don't really, if you really don't know who you're voting for, like you could leave it blank. But ideally, I mean, even if you're in the voting booth, yes, I mean, there's long voting lines, et cetera. So have these things queued up. But, um, you know, look up the candidates really fast or, or jot down notes. But I think yeah. what else you, you said is a great, great suggestion because a lot of it, so there's this great equation in political science about why people vote. And one of the reasons we don't is that the costs are very high. And usually when we think of costs, we think of waiting in line, getting to the polls, all registering, all of that. But there's also a cost of just getting informed, as you just asked, right? Right. And so if you are someone who is super informed, one thing you can do is 
issue voting guides to your friends. And so, or, so I have a friend, Hal Phillips, who often posts on social media where he's like, I, he's super into local politics and he will post who he likes, why he likes them. And these are for hyper local New York elections. And yes. it's really valuable. I, I don't always vote the way he does, but it's a great service to just aggregate that information and point people to other resources. So if you're someone who's in the know, can you make life easier for someone who isn't? And if you're not in the know and you don't have time, I think, Keith, exactly what you described, which is there's so many organizations that are doing that sort of thing. I'm sure, you know, BLM is putting out guides for who to vote for. But I think you're absolutely right. LGBTQ communities, black women voters, Latinx voters, I'm sure are listing other guides as well. And that's a great place. We call them information shortcuts. It's like, how can you figure out the right choice without doing all the work, basically? Right. Well, thank you for validating me on that one. (laughs) I mean, I mostly did it because I just, you're right. The language in them is so confusing. And so often they seem to be doing the opposite of what they're doing. And Mm -hmm. that drives me nuts. Mm -hmm. Um, There's another person, if you ever want to have more political science on your show, if your listeners want to follow more political science, there's a political scientist named Andrea Benjamin, who I went to grad school with, and she's now at Oklahoma. She is the reigning expert on local politics. And she knows like every mayor race. And she thinks that local politics are the most important. I retweet her all the time. She will, if you're not sure, follow her and she'll eventually speak about some local race. Um, And she's constantly trying to get people to pay attention to the down ballot um, uh, names. And she also does a lot of work on, you know, so party ID doesn't actually work at the local level as much. Like normally if you're looking at Congress, you're like, I'm going to choose the Democrat and the Republican And that's just kind of how it's going to go, right, for most people, many people. But down ballot, you know, they might not be parties you recognize or there might be three Democrat candidates or or something else. And so she looks at what else contributes to it. And one of the things is co-ethnic sponsors. So if a Latinx candidate is sponsored or supported by a black organization or a Latinx organization sponsors a black candidate, then you start to get more support. So looking for who sponsored them at the local level probably requires looking up your local paper and seeing who's supporting them. That can help too. And I love that you don't have to uh, learn a new name. Just stick with the uh, Andreas for all of your political science. Exactly. Um, Andrea, it was really great getting to spend time with you. Thank you for taking time out of your night to talk with us. We're going to hurry this one out before the, uh, before the election. I, we should right. have had you on a month ago, but a month <laughs> ago we didn't have a podcast yet. So, <laughs> well, yeah, I, as much as I would have loved to be episode minus one, uh, happy to be here while it exists. Uh, parting shot. Where can people find you online? Yes. So I am online at Jonesroy, J-O-N-E-S-R-O-O-Y on Twitter, Instagram and Jonesroy.com. Excellent. And that's where they can also find uh, information on Ask a Political Scientist. Yes, indeed. And you can or also can, just ask a political scientist on YouTube. You'll probably get to it there as well. Yeah, there's like six of them, but you're the best. Oh, one. there is? Oh, forget no, it. No, no, I'm, to- I'm totally oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I will ruin them. I got to go. Yes. <laughs> now, now you're going to be up all night destroying oh lives. God. Yeah. All perfect. right. Thank you so much. Uh, this <laughs> has you. been Keith Lowell Jensen Presents the Keith Lowell Jensen Show with Keith Lowell Jensen. And I am your host, Keith Lowell Jensen. The producer is Joe Honor. The art for the show is done by Joe Honor. Our editor, audio engineer is Jack Mantrenga. And Joe and Jack are both from Hyperpixel. Hyperpixel is a production company with a focus on digital marketing and e-commerce. Our music was done by DJ Reel. Uh, next week's guest is a surprise. Huh? A surprise, which is my way 
way of saying the guest hasn't confirmed yet, but tune in. I can confirm that in the coming month, we have Greg Proops of Whose Line Is It Anyway? Uh, we have Wendy and Richard Pinney of ElfQuest, and, uh, and I've got Jeffrey Brown coming up pretty soon after that, uh, author of Vader's Little Princess and Jedi Academy and my own favorite, Clumsy. So good stuff. Be sure to follow me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram uh, and TikTok at Keith Lowell is uh, my name on all those and follow the podcast at all those same places uh, at KLJ podcast. And thank you so much for joining us once again, beloved listeners. We'll see you next week. <laughs>